Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. seven billion people in the world we all have one thing in common every day we all get dressed welcome to dressed the history of fashion a podcast where we explore the who what when of why we wear we are fashion historians and your hosts april callahan and cassidy zachary april i am very excited for today's guests so dress listeners if you tuned into last week's episode then you know that I recently had the pleasure of attending an exhibit at Biltmore, the sprawling estate that was built by George Vanderbilt in Asheville, North Carolina in the 1890s. And I was there to see their current exhibition, A Vanderbilt House Party, The Gilded Age, which is on view until May 27th. Yeah, and last week we were joined by Biltmore's Curator of Interpretation, Leslie Klingner, who worked closely with today's guest, the Academy Award-winning designer John Bright. And for this exhibit, John and his incredible team at Cosprop London helped recreate the wardrobe worn by the Vanderbilt family and also their house guests. Yes. So basically imagine any period film or TV series that you've ever heard of. And Cosprop has probably built the costumes for it from the beloved 1995 Pride and Prejudice TV series to 2018's Vanity Fair. And from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom to Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette to both also the 1974 and 2017 versions of Murder on the Orient Express. Founded by John in 1965, Cosprop has grown to become one of the world's leading customers to film, television, and theater. And that long list of productions include many designed by John himself. With his partner, Jenny Beaven, John has been nominated for an Academy Award six times. Yeah, so he and Jenny designed one of my absolute favorite films of all time, and that is the 1995 version of Sense and Sensibility. But the duo actually took home the Oscar for the 1985 film that they did together, A Room with a View. And April, I just have to tell you that You can see John and Jenny's acceptance speech online. It's the 59th Academy Awards. And there is this highly entertaining dance number in which the dancers and models wear these modern interpretations of the costumes designed (laughs) by the nominees. So it's like fashioning these historically costume period films. So it's so bizarre and fabulous. And just Google it immediately and you'll know what I'm, I'm talking about. So While I was at Biltmore, I had the honor of spending time with John and meeting his exhibition team, Judith and Amy, who were lovely, by the way. And I sat down with him for a chat. And April, as you know, I had originally intended to use this on my Art of Dress blog, but I was thrilled when our producer, Casey, said that the sound quality made the cut for the podcast. So please excuse the slight change in volumes throughout, but I think you will agree with me that this is well worth hearing. John's going to talk to us about his decade-long career. So let's tune in. Welcome, John. I would love to hear, I know you told me yesterday, but just a little bit more about how you got your start in um, in the costuming business. Yes. So um, the beginning was 
the fact that I wanted to be an actor, mm-hmm. but my father wouldn't hear of it. He was um, a Victorian. He was born in 1894. So when it came to me getting a job, as it were, he thought that I ought to have some sort of craft mm-hmm. or... Yeah, I think it was more... Yes, it was a craft, really, that I ought to do. And so there weren't any theatre schools at that time uh, to do theatre design, certainly not near me where we lived. And so I had to do a fashion course. So I went to the Southwest Essex Technical College and School of Art <laughs> and did uh, a four-year fashion course. And were you always into fashion from a young age, or were you fascinated with costume? No, I was never particularly interested in fashion, <laughs> but I had to do it because, you know, it's just um, there was no way of getting into a, a school that, that did theatre things. Yeah. Um, but what happened was that every night when at college, I would go into the library and just look up the various books that mm-hmm. they had, and they had quite a wide range Some of them were American publications. There's one by Lucy Barton. I think it's called Costume Through the Ages or something. Mm -hmm. And that sort of started me off. And even I think as early as that, I was thinking that I might start a costume house because I can remember thinking, what is the best date to cover? Because, of course, you can't cover everything. And so I think I decided uh, that the later 18th century through to about 1945 would be quite good um, because of the literature of Mm -hmm. that time. Mm -hmm. So you have, in the late 18th century, you have the Sheridan and Oliver Goldsmith plays, and and then you have to wait a bit, but in 1800s you get the Jane, Jane Austen thing. And then after that, you know, the progression of Dickens mm-hmm. and all George Burnature up at the 1900 end. So I concentrated mainly on that mm-hmm. that sort of time uh, span. I think my first efforts at period cutting mm-hmm. were not good. Um, I remember the lady who taught us, who was connected with theatre, even though she was teaching fashion, said that I hadn't got the shape right. But what she suggested was I go to this uh, place called the Players Theatre in London and they do a a musical sort of uh, uh, acts every night with a master of ceremonies and then several, several acts. And they had been given by all sorts of people costumes to use. And so she suggested I went there and had a look at the original things. Oh, wow. And, of course, they had things from about the 1840s onwards. And so I took material patterns from them. And, uh, and uh, you know, it, it turned out to be the best way of doing it for mm-hmm. me. And then handling the real things, of course, you understand the construction. Mm-hmm. I remember they had one 1870s dress, you know, with lots of bumps, uh-huh. and the bumps were all taped together. And the wardrobe mistress would say, 
With that dress, you're lucky to get across the stage before something going wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. That's the, You're talking about the bustle era. Yes, so, right? that, so yes, the, it, when you look inside those dresses, yes, it's that's incredible. Right, with all those tapes. Yep. And she said, <laughs> you know, shook her head. Not a good idea, she said. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, she seemed quite cheerful about it. Yeah. But that was, that was the starting point of getting patterns together. Uh-huh. And then in art school anyway, we would go up to the V&A Museum Absolutely. on a Thursday and just draw. And oh, wow. that again, you got really good ideas uh, because it was all there. So were you using the V&A collection for your research? Were you actually studying historic garments or were you studying portraiture? No, I think they wanted you to just brush up on your, your drawing, oh, okay. really for illustrative purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, a, you know, we would set off in the morning from Walthamstow, which is just outside town, mm-hmm. and we'd get there maybe about 11, mm-hmm. and then we'd stay there till about 4. It was very nice because, of course, that museum has so much. I mean, it, it's yeah. the equivalent, really, of the Metropolitan, isn't it? Yeah. It just has everything there. And so... You know, you have the chance to learn tremendously. Yeah. And then this was in the early 60s, you were in school. Uh, yes. It's, um, I went first went to the college in 1957. And so the four-year course ended in 61. But um, in the second year of being there, um, we were taken across to Paris. So 1958, we went to Paris and we were allowed to sit in on most of the major shows. Wow. Certainly Christian Dior, Balenciaga, Givenchy, uh, Chanel. Well, uh, that's a privilege I, because yeah. of your professor was able to uh, get you that access? I think maybe it was. I, I'm not sure now. Do you have any recollections of those collections that oh, stand yes. out to you? Oh, definitely. The Dior one, uh, particularly, I even remember... Uh, how the models walked and things because it was such a revelation. And there was one model uh, called Christine Tidmarsh and she modelled suits and it was marvellous how she did it. She had this very high umbrella uh-huh. that she would tuck under her arm as she came back along the, the catwalk and, you know, she had a very snazzy hat and... And, and also a bag. And she, yeah, it was very... Was Christian Dior still alive or was that after? That would have been after, right? when he died. He died in, in 57. I think he would have just died. And then died Yves there. Saint Laurent would have been a 22-year-old baby yes. who took over. <laughs> yes. <gasps> oh, and oh, he yes. did the trapeze collection. Don't know if you remember yes. what the fashions looked like. Oh, yes, a yeah. triangle, wasn't it? It really mm-hmm. was. Where Ren came away from the body, and that was in the late 50s. Right. And then he did his controversial beatneck collection with the leather motorcycle jacket. Ah, yes. And then he was gone the next year. Yes. Now, I think the influence of Dior was completely there Mm -hmm. because I remember all the, the pictures of various celebrities and how their suits and everything worked. And it was very much that mm. those shapes. Years later, I got given 
by Doris Langley Moore, are worth bodies, which because of the war years and things being so expensive, mm-hmm. they had slightly altered it. They'd taken off the high collar. This must have been a sort of 1890s bodice. Mm-hmm. And Doris uh, lent it to a ballerina, Margot Fontaine, oh, for wow. one of her press release mm-hmm. days. And she put it with a wide deal skirt. And so you had the the shape from the 1890s, but it then opened out into what was a, you know, swinging modern wide skirt. Wow. Mm. And I still have that. I might have shown it to you. Very, very lovely. Um, but they, you know, Doris has had, she had a very old typewriter mm-hmm. and she would type in things that she'd put on her costumes. I don't know whether to remind herself or others. And she would say that she'd lent it, but there was an alteration to the collar. But when you actually look at it, I think they did a bit more than the yeah. collar. <laughs> <laughs> I think they cheated. <laughs> uh, and then you said you also saw Balenciaga, which would have been completely silent, yeah. right? Because yes, that, very... yes that, that was extraordinary. And Givenchy, who was really his... Uh, who followed him, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those were very extraordinary shapes. Wow. I don't think we've got much of... We've got a couple of Balenciagas in, in our collection, mm-hmm. but um, they are marvellous. You know, the understanding of shape and the human body mm-hmm. is tremendous. He's the master. Mm. Yeah, yeah, he's incredible. Yeah. So you opened Cost Prop in 1965, and you were making period costumes for film and television right off the bat or was it more no. theater no i think because between those years six, mm-hmm. 61 mm-hmm. to 65 i was working in repertory theater oh, okay and so i had a chance to do the acting because i still looked very young at that point i was playing sort of boys parts jim mm-hmm. hawkins in treasure island and all that sort of stuff but also i had to produce the clothes for mm-hmm. the various things. So I had a chance to visit the London costume houses and get to know, you know, which were the best Mm -hmm. ones and why and all the rest of it. Um, But then I had to go back and actually create things that we Mm -hmm. couldn't hire. Mm -hmm. And also there was a system then of getting clothes from other repertory companies that had, you know, who'd gone through the same Mm -hmm. process and they had lots of real things that they lent us for productions like Jane Eyre and everything. So it seems a bit bad that we were, at the beginning, mm. still using original clothes. And I'm afraid when I started the firm, when I... When you say original, you're talking about like 18... Jane Eyre would be, what, yes, 1840s? 1840s yeah. Yes, yes. Um, but I was thinking when I started the firm, I'm afraid I even used an 18th century dress on some production. Is that when you started collecting uh, yeah, historic about fashion? That, yes, but um, with that that dress, I'm afraid um, because it was so short, we had added something, so the basic dress didn't get ruined. Well, don't feel too bad. The Met was still letting people model. Were they? Yeah, oh, model right. historic clothing in the eight, in the 1960s. Were they? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's there's interesting photographs. Um, yeah. 
there's photographs, there's a really famous Worth gown that's covered in this beautiful cascade of flowers right. the Met, and there's a woman wearing Actually, it in the ah, 60s. Good. Yes. So it was a different time, so I, you're it, forgiven. Yes, no, it's interesting, <laughs> yeah. though, isn't it? But subsequently, of course, we've <laughs> learned that that 18th century dress is the largest piece of silk um, designed by Anne-Marie Garthwaite <gasps> in any museum in the world. And you have it still? And I have it still. Altered. Yes, I think it. I think you can see it on that website. Mm-hmm. I think. It's, oh, really? Yes. Oh, I'll have to look no. it up. The LA County Museum has a side panel, and the London Museum has some sort of front panel. But um, we have the complete dress. So because it was a, a Watto back, when you open it out, it comes to about I don't know three, four yards. Wide. Do you know how you acquired that dress originally? Yes, I bought it in a sort of antique shop in Parkway, which is Camden Town, where we we were. And well, I we bought can't that. do that today anymore, can yeah. you? I bought that <laughs> and two fans for wow. twelve pounds fifty. Wow! How <laughs> <laughs> does he know where he got it? <laughs> <laughs> what else? He yeah. And what else he had, he bought with it? Yeah. Right. So, well, I think £12.50 uh, resonates with me because that's what we paid ourselves at the beginning, uh, per week. And yeah. you spent all your wages on it. Yeah. Little did you know how valuable it was. Yeah. Or maybe you obviously instinctually did. I don't know that I did. Mm-mm. No, I think I just admired the silk because it was so fantastic. Yeah, yeah. it truly is. And they have so many records of her patterns. Yes, Yeah. that's right. And uh, Natalie Rothstein did this book, mm-hmm. which has all those patterns in. Mm-hmm. And um, she came to see it at one point. I think after she'd written the book rather than before, yeah. It was probably a real treat. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And so you're starting your company, and then um, how did you start doing film and TV? You just started to earn a reputation as a period costume house? Uh, so the basic um, everyday thing was um, the repertory companies around around London. And I think we wrote to various companies and said, this is what we were starting. And uh, the BBC was one of the companies we wrote to. And so they, two designers came from the BBC. One was doing a production of Great Expectations and they wanted us to do the Miss Havisham wedding dress. And the other person who came, I'm not sure what the production was for, but anyway, it was an 1820s gown. So we had to look around for fabric. And there were still sort of fairly big department stores, even in Camden Town at the time. And so I think the material I used was just a curtain fabric, which had a not an Indian-inspired pattern, but uh, then we broke it down and did all sorts of things to it. We still have it today, but when I look at it, obviously, it's very crude to the amount of work that Amy would do or some someone mm-hmm. now. Mm. Of course, it was still black and white television. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or that production was. Mm-hmm. And when did you start designing? Or how did you start designing? Well, I'd been designing for 
for theatre things mm -hmm. in a sort of amateur way and creating, I think, Oscar Wilde plays were the first, first ones. So they were very sort of crude versions of what we start with here. Um, I still have a couple of them, and I did use original bits on them, but obviously compared to the work that we can do now, it's mm -hmm. but they're very crude. Mm -hmm. And I learned quite a lot in rep about stagecraft. You know how to get with a costume, mm -hmm. as someone make an entrance and get a round of applause. I think that happened quite a lot with with the Oscar Wilde plays because they're always having dramatic entrances. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, it was a quite nice thing to learn how you can get this sort of... Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and do you remember, which was your, what was your first period film that you designed? Do you remember? Yes, yes. It was definitely a Merchant Ivory film. It was The Bostonians. Okay. But that's quite a lot later. I'd been offered to design something called The Uniform in the early 70s, I think. Um, but it never got off the ground. So, and then I worked with a designer um, who was working with Merchant Ivory and we did uh, The Europeans. But really we used mainly real things in that, I have to say. Mm -hmm. um, but most of those dresses have survived. And it was for one of those dresses... Uh, Lee Remick's dress, evening dress, that we used some lace that had come from Princess Eugenie. I don't know how one knew it had come from her, but I suppose... You know. What? <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, yes, you, you sort of know. Um, Provenance, somebody's... Yes, it yeah. must have been mm -hmm. when, when it was bought, because Judy, who had designed the... Um, it was the designer on that film... Um, also went to Portobello Road every Friday. And I think, you know, because if you're in the know and go to these places continually, I think you do get to know what, whether something's genuinely something or genuinely mm -hmm. not. Mm -hmm. um, she had one or two real sadnesses. She brought in a wedding dress one Friday and was so pleased with it because it was perfect and uh, it was in a cardboard box and she showed us and, she, uh, and we said, well, I doubt whether we can afford to have this for the museum. She said, well, no, she, she understood that and she'd try and find someone to buy it. Then the week later she came back and said, I, I might have found someone and we looked at it again and already cracks like you saw mm -hmm. in that lining were appearing, and I'm afraid within a week, the whole thing had virtually disintegrated. Wow, because it had never been exposed to, to air. air. Yeah. Wow. Eunice, I mean, she was pretty upset, but yeah. Yeah, no, it's pretty incredible. And that's how you came, um, being in the know was how you came across the your Bally Roos treasures, a few of them, right? Yes, I suppose so. Yes. You knew what someone didn't know they had. <laughs> yes, I, I definitely did. Mm -hmm. I think I'd start, I, I did a film about getting clothes together for a film uh, called Costume in 1975. Oh, cool. And it was about Nijinsky. Oh, and I see this. I played Nijinsky in the film. 
because I was about the right height and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. But I do you know who Mark Bolan is or was? Mark, Mark Bolan? Yes, he was a pop singer from the sort of yes, mid-70s. Yes. Mm-hmm. Fuzzy hair? Yeah. Mm. Amazing clothes. What? Amazing clothes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, um, so what we did, we used me, and I had Mark Bolan hair then because obviously the curls that I've got now were much more <laughs> luxurious <laughs> in the... Uh, in the 70s, and um, we had to turn me into Nijinsky. And so there were various tests shown in the film. The difference we tried to show between when the ballet first opened to the uh, public in Paris in 1909 to, say, even the first four years of it mm-hmm. in 1913. And we had one or two dresses from that. And so we had two scenes of sort of interval, as it were, uh, showing the difference. But, of course, when you look at it now, you see other influences, in, you know, 70s influences mm-hmm. that we hadn't intended to put there. Yeah, that's but one of the, I think that's one of the tricky things about it costuming. Is, it is. It mostly appears in hair and makeup. Yes, um, it does. Because a lot of yeah. it is the contemporary beauty standards. Yep. Uh, Especially in the 60s and yes, 70s. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. But in the costumes too, because a lot of times the fabric choices yep. and the color choices. Yeah, it's not too bad, mm-hmm. but you definitely know. But some of the reproductions um, still hold up. I'm mm-hmm. quite pleased with the Giselle um, costume because I'd only seen black and white images of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize that the underneath of one of the black uh, Elizabethan almost inspired outfits had a pink, pink coming through. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, I put pink in there. So years later, when I saw the real thing, I was quite surprised that I got (laughs) it right. Instinctually, (laughs) you knew. Well, I thought it would be a shame if it was too white Mm -hmm. coming through from the black. That's why I think I put the tone of pink in there. And, yes, and I think some of the reproductions are pretty good. I'd obviously looked at different um, pictures because when what I now know is that some of the costumes vary. Mm-hmm. You know, the 1910 version of Scheherazade or whatever isn't the same as the 1917 version yeah. <laughs> and all that stuff because 1917 was really the year that um, Nijinsky, that was the end of it for him, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Because uh, he he was going off his rocker or whatever the term is. Um, but... Uh, it was a very interesting exercise. I'd like to do another version of that with now what I've learned yeah. you know, since then. Yeah. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. We wholeheartedly endorse this venture. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, what are the, who are the costume designers that you really admire? I mean, Leon Basque did the costumes for yes. Ballet Russe. Well, they're um, just extraordinary. Historically, um, maybe even contemporary, are there costume designers who have really inspired you throughout your career? or that you think are particularly special? Well, the designer who did the film I was talking about the other day, The Leopard, is definitely one of the best. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any question about that. What I, makes a great designer, do you think? Oh, I don't know. You're in, 
you often only know because of the work that Success. surrounds yeah. them, <laughs> don't you? <laughs> their out product, yeah, their yeah. final product. Yes. Yeah, that's very true. And so it's quite tricky to tell mm-hmm. because lots of people have good, nice ideas. Mm-hmm. It's just that when it comes to pushing them into three dimensions. Mm-hmm. And an ensemble cast yeah. and in different settings yeah. and in the storytelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all of those things. And, you know, you you lose. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, do you know, I can't think of many. Uh, my, one of my clo- two of my closest friends are designers. Um, Dinah, who did um, The Pride and Prejudice, the 19... 19- 96 version mm-hmm. of the BBC, uh, she usually gets things pretty. She, the most recent film was My Cousin Rachel, okay. um, which was pretty good. Another friend is Chloe Obolensky, um, who mainly does opera now, mm. um, but she used to work <coughs> with someone called Lila De Nobili, mm-hmm. uh, who is um Italian princess or something. And she was a very painterly designer. And she did a film, uh, she was in charge of a film called uh, The Charge of the Light Brigade, which was the first film that we worked on, 1967. She She's very much to be admired because when you look at her books of designs, mm-hmm. they're like looking at you know, marvellous paintings. Wonderful. You know, Anthony Powell does really nice work when you look at um, the, that series of films, Death on the Nile, and that he did. I'm not so keen on so many people. Mm-hmm. I suppose I suppose it's difficult, isn't it, when you're working with them mm-hmm. and you, you hear them saying things and whatever, and you sort of know some of those things are quite wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Jim Atchison saying to uh, one of the makers, you must get all these lines straight on an 18th century thing. I think it was dangerous liaisons. And I thought, no, you mustn't get all those lines straight or people will look very heavy. You have to curve with the body mm-hmm. and really shelve in. So, you know, it's, uh, uh, it is tricky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, when you're an expert at yourself well, as well. Well, you know, it's just that because... Um, You've been through all the patterns and things mm-hmm. and you know how it really is. Mm-hmm. When you hear that, you know, it's quite tricky. <laughs> so it must be a little challenging sometimes when you are designing, knowing the historical record that you know and knowing how historical fashion is built, yes. adapting it to camera and to costuming. Has that ever been a challenge? Because well, sometimes you can't always keep... Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Because of the people often mm-hmm. that... Um, or the director's vision or the actress's. Yes, no. <laughs> so really the main body of work that I've done is mm-hmm. with the Merchant Ivory Company. And they just, you know, they recognize what I've done is right and they just let me get on with it. And so very rarely do they actually say, you know, That's we need or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, and... Most of the people that, that, you know, that we worked with with them accept various things. I think Uma Thurman didn't understand a particular sleeve. (coughs) She said it looks like Rodeo's something. And uh, I didn't know what she meant, but 
it was something that was clear in her mind that, mm-hmm. that she didn't like. But in general, I mean, mm-hmm. she wore... And uh, and she sent me a Christmas card the following year saying, thank you for making my year so special. So really, she did sort of understand apart from those <laughs> sleeves. <laughs> yeah, and there are a lot of actors that do understand. And, yes. Yeah. And uh, it's really good to mm-hmm. work with because they'll just say something and it puts you exactly in the right moment. Mm-hmm. There was one particular thing. Have you ever seen Howard's End? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So Vanessa Redgrave mm-hmm. is playing uh, the spirit of Howard's End, really. You know, this is her house, mm-hmm. and she's a bit away with the fairies. So we came to fit her uh, for her Christmas shopping trip to Fortnum and Mason. And so I, I had some original things I wanted to put on her, and I put them on. And one cloak I put on her was a sort of dark, no, it was beige. And then I put it on her and I said, well, Vanessa, this is this is just the shape that I think we ought to do, uh, but it, it will be darker because it's winter. And she suddenly said, I don't want it to be darker. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, why is that? And she said, it's got to be light. And... Um, I said, that's quite unusual for winter. And she said, no, it must be light. And I must have a hat with, um, uh, and she couldn't quite describe it. I uh-huh. said, mouflon, because you know, I could see that she was almost suggesting uh-huh. hair. And she said, yes. Uh, and so I, I went away and I found we had a, a mouflon hood. And and she said, feathers. Uh, and... Um, but the sad thing was I had in my mind a particular piece of fabric I, oh. want, I wanted to use on this outfit. <laughs> so I thought, hmm. So in the end, what I did was uh, I gave her a sort of medium green skirt mm-hmm. and she was quite happy with that. But then I found this almost cashmere type stuff to make the cloak out of but I used my material on the inside, so it came out as two lapels down there. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Is that the one that's mounted in the case yeah. as you go? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. And it's the most fantastic fabric. You're not allowed to do it nowadays, but it's a velvet, which is traced out with the pattern in uh, acid, isn't it, I think? Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful, stunning stuff. But, of course, she was quite right. Because as she was in the uh, Fortnum and Mason, she looks like a ghost, a spirit. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, with the, the, yeah. the lightness and this light hat and everyone around her muffled up to the nines and whatever. And she stands out. And she stands out in just the right way. Mm-hmm. So you have to listen to people because sometimes there's a real mm-hmm. nugget of information. Mind you, she's been in a couple of other films. <laughs> where, where her instinct hasn't been quite so good. After we were filming, what's the thing I did in China? The White Countess. Mm-hmm. And she was in that. And after about three days, when I just arrived over there and we'd been filming, um, she came and asked for a pair of scissors. And I, I thought, oh, well, I, maybe she wants to send a parcel home or whatever. <laughs> 
And then um, about an hour later, I saw her and she'd cut all her hair off. This is after three days of filming. <gasps> because she decided that her character had been a ballet dancer and for some reason she lost her hair. So she cut it all off. Director was not very happy. <laughs> no, I can't remember what Jim said. But, you know, I had to then work out turbans that she could wear to cover up the fact that the hair was no longer there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm-hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So are there any productions of yours or particular costumes that you're particularly proud of that really stand out in your career? Well, I think the best clothes that I've ever done for a film, which wasn't nominated, by the way, (laughs) not that I'm bitter, (laughs) is The Golden Bowl. But they had so much trouble with uh, the production of The Golden Bowl that I think there were arguments with (laughs) Harvey Weinstein and all the rest of it. And so... By the time it came to awards season, it was well done. Yeah, oh, that's too bad. Um, but that, I think, is my best work because each of those people had 18, I think, 18 outfits. Wow. Kate Beckinsale, Uma Thurman, Angelica Houston. So we've had most of those here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and some of them still exist. Some, <laughs> this... of, some of them may be here now. Yeah, they um, are. It's amazing how... Right, they look in the house. Yeah, yeah, it's just because in a way the Golden Bowl was about um, the first billionaire in America and his wife and, you know, the goings-on. Mm-hmm. And there's several pieces from that production on display now. Yes. In this exhibit. Um, certainly the green one we were mm-hmm. looking at. And you have had the Golden Bowl dress, haven't you, at one point? And that's what inspired the butterfly. Yes, the that's the colour that inspired the butterfly dress. I love Uma's Cleopatra. 
Oh, yes, that's right. Yes. There's surprisingly really, it's really hard to find images of her in that dress online because I was trying to post it in anticipation of this exhibit because yeah. I love that yes. costume. Yes. Uh, but there's only a couple and they're just very short. Yes. Um, it's funny. The, um, mm-hmm. You know the magazine called The National Enquirer, is it mm-hmm. called? Yes. Uh, they had a version of it on the front of their uh, magazine one week soon after it opened. Interesting. <laughs> at, at Kate Moss in, a, uh, in an evening dress that was obviously based on that. Oh. Very interesting. I, I hadn't noticed. Well, yes, you'd ha- I had noticed before. Certainly the stuff we did uh, for Out of Africa, uh, that was on Fifth Avenue at one point, I think. Yeah, oh, so. Out of Africa was hugely influential yeah. on fashion. Yeah. 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 And since we, I think we did 63 outfits for Meryl on that. Well, she just is absolutely stunning in that. Mm. How could it not mm. <laughs> influence how people want to see themselves? Yeah. Are you particularly fond of any era? You've done quite a few films in the Ed- Edwardian era, early 1900s. Yes. Um, well, just before the First World War, I think it's because of the interest in the Russian ballet and how influential Baxt was, mm-hmm. because I keep coming across things that are clearly influenced by that, mm-hmm. you know, down to the pattern being virtually the same, mm-hmm. uh, directly lifted from that. And I think Poirot was quite... Uh, quite um, Inspired. I think he must have been, because... Yeah. he so, denies it, but even yeah. if he denies it, it was in the It was in the air. Yeah, uh, yeah. As Jung would say, the universal consciousness. Yeah. It, it was in the air. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, I am particularly fond of Poiré yeah. and pre, pre-World pre War One era. Yeah. I think 1911 to 1914 yeah, are some of the best. That, I think, is my favorite. Yeah. Because it still retains a lot of all that gubbins mm-hmm. in every way. But... Um, it's like the last shot of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like they knew. It's yeah. just crazy that yeah. we were looking at Le Mode from that era today. Yeah. And the silhouettes yeah. that were being produced are just so bizarre. Yeah. And so fun and experimental. And it's really this highly artistic, expressionist yeah. period in fashion yeah. that you it don't is. see. No. And then for the war to come and just kind of stop it in its tracks. It's yeah. pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And it is. More. We need more pre- World War One era films. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I th- we're doing two at the moment, but um, the Kingsman Three mm-hmm. is um, sort of that era, going through from fourteen to seventeen. Mm-hmm. And there's one other which I've forgotten about, but um, well, we'll see. You never know. What do you think is the hardest era to recreate? Is there a period that is especially difficult? Or requires meticulous attention to detail to do accurately? Well, I think there are several periods that are difficult. Early 17th century is quite tricky mm-hmm. because it's it's not that attractive to our eye now, mm-hmm. that firmness and high-waisted... It's very distorted body. Yeah, it is. For both men and, and women. And I think it is quite tricky. Mm-hmm. I think... Is it a film called Tulip Fever? We tried to do it on. Uh, Harvey Weinstein said that no one must wear those ruffs, and so I don't know whether that completely killed the look. I haven't seen the film. So 
that's difficult. I mean, I think that's all the questions I have. <laughs> well, that's good. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, that was really wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> <gasps> what a wonderful interview. His career is truly incredible. To think that he actually remembers the Dior and Balenciaga show so clearly. I know. I'm, I'm really always surprised by how vividly people remember things from their past, from decades and decades ago. But thank goodness they do because we get to enjoy um, remembering it with them. So I've worked in film for over a decade now. Um, and the irony is that I only very rarely have ever had the chance to work on a period film or TV series. So this was such a rare treat for me to get to meet John. And it was really such a pleasure. I also found it really cool how he uses his historic dress and textile collection to inform historically accurate designs, you know, with the productions that he's working with. And, and that Anna Marie Garth White story is truly incredible. It really is. And he has some of the most rare and exquisite of pieces in his collection. And I'm thrilled to share with our listeners that you can actually browse many of these pieces from the collection online. So if you head to the johnbrightcollection.co.uk, you can browse over 300 pieces. And this includes men's, women's, and children's wear from the early 18th to the late 20th centuries, and includes many wonderful items of fancy dress and ballet russe costumes and many, many others. I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you, like John, consider your favorite era of fashion history next time you get dressed. So remember to tune in this Thursday for the latest edition of Fashion History Mystery, where we address questions from you, our listeners. We love hearing from you. So if you would like to email us, please do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will also find images accompanying each week's episode. This is also our Twitter handle, dressed underscore podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. For additional readings for each week's episode, check out our show notes at dresspodcast.com. And please don't forget about our merch store at tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dressed. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio who makes this show possible each and every week. Catch you Thursday. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.